Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When a happy-go-lucky 10-year-old's trip to the store comes to a tragic end... Everyone wonders, who could commit such a senseless crime, and why? He inflicted too much damage on that kid. There was a big reason why he did. And I, I just don't know what it was. Investigators only know they're looking for a monster, and they're determined to find him. My feeling was, I want to get this son of a bitch. I want to get the guy who did this to Bernie Mitchell. A slew of perps pops out of the woodwork. But when police finally zero in on the real bad guy, his motive is more shocking than anyone can imagine. Police were in for something that they hadn't expected. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? During the industrial era, Trenton fed the world's hunger for manufactured goods of all kinds. But under its blue-collar belt, this central Jersey town still feeds another craving for Trenton's famous tomato pie. A tomato pie is similar to a pizza, whereas pizza has more cheese, but a tomato pie is more tomato sauce and plump tomatoes and such thinner crust. And the T-Town's unique version of the pizza pie lures everyone from local yokels to superstars into restaurants like Di Lorenzo's. There were a number of Hollywood personalities and various sports uh, persons like Joe DiMaggio and Sammy Davis Jr. And they came to get the Trenton tomato pie. And if Trenton's haute cuisine is known far and wide, so is the homespun hospitality of the city's West Ward where the Mitchell clan cozies up in their sturdy brick home sweet row home. This big, happy family of 10 is busier than the New Jersey Turnpike at rush hour, with eldest daughter Michelle often directing traffic. My house is uh, very much alive. <laughs> we play well with one another. We're, we're very athletic, so it was a uh, competition. 
With so many mouths to feed, Papa Charles pays the bills as a long-haul trucker, while his loving wife, Shirley, stays home mothering their rambunctious brood, including Mama's boy, 10-year-old Bernie. Bernie loved my mother. He could do no wrong. You'd be mad, but then you have to just love him in spite of it. This mischievous middle boy is always the life of the party. Bernie had a little devilish but angel type of mannerism. Honestly, it's no other way to say it. Everybody loved Bernie. In the winter of 1976, the Mitchell's beloved little boy is living life to the fullest when he sprints full speed into a dead end. It's a cold winter's night on Wednesday, January 28th, and Michelle and Vernie can't wait to dig into dinner. But Mama Mitchell's still putting on the final touches, and around 7.30, she sends Vernie out for a loaf of bread. You can get to the store in less than five minutes. It was right around the corner. Always up for some fresh air and a good run, Vernie bolts out the door. But when a half hour goes by and he still isn't home, Michelle goes out to look for her baby brother. I went to the store. I asked a few of the people in the store, had they seen my brother? Everybody knew everybody in the neighborhood. And they said, yes, he came in, he got bread, and he left. So Michelle comes home empty-handed. And when she and mom call Vernie's buddies, no one has seen the boy. That's when Vernie's road-weary dad, Charles, walks in from a four-day run to Chicago and goes right back out to look for Vernie. I went, I don't know, I'm in the places, but right in the neighborhood. You know, I said maybe, you know, he got hit by a car. When Dad comes home at one in the morning, still without his beloved boy, Shirley Mitchell's mama bear instinct kick in for real. I remember my mother screamed, and she said, my baby, my baby's dead. I think as a mother, she knew. No one can believe someone could have harmed young Vernie. And the Mitchell family is at their wit's end so they call Trenton's top guns to report a missing child. With 30 years on the force, Detective Charles Hall is a real cop's cop, ready for action. But except for the Mitchell case, all's quiet that sleepy Thursday morning. Until Officer Hall gets a call that wakes him up faster than a double shot of espresso. There was a body that was found. They didn't say who it was or anything, just a, a body was found. Seems a young mother dialed into dispatch, telling police her two young sons glanced out the bedroom window around seven. And though they hadn't heard a thing, they saw a terrible sight. A young boy lying lifeless between two buildings off Laurel Avenue. In the blink of an eye, the good detective arrives at the scene. I saw this young boy that was laying there totally mutilated. It was sad to see this kid bruised, cut, and stabbed. The boy is lying on his back, his angelic face drenched in blood. He's wearing a shirt, but not much else. To the experienced officer, 
it looks like he was sexually assaulted. And a gash in the boy's forehead could be blunt force trauma, maybe caused by a slab of concrete near the body. It was terrible, especially when you have children of your own to see a little, little child land there like that. It was heart-wrenching. News of the horrible crime travels quickly through this tight-knit neighborhood, stopping right at the Mitchells' home. So Papa Charles races to the crime scene, just one street over, his heart pumping a mile a minute. And he comes face to face with his worst fear. After I saw what was done to my son, I just don't believe no human could do that to another human. Try not to think too hard, because this hurt me more than anything. Who would commit such a senseless crime is a pedophile living in their midst? Or did a stranger steal Vernie's life and disappear into the night? Hoping for answers, Officer Hall calls on the boys in homicide. Detective Michael Cosmo is one good cop who lives to catch bad guys. And nothing makes his day more than solving a tough case, like the murder mystery playing out off Laurel Avenue. It became a very emotional uh, thing for me because you can't get those pictures out of your mind. You can only imagine what he went through. In fact, the boy's stab wounds are so vicious and there are so many that they give detectives a clue. A case of overkill like this usually means the killer knew his victim and had it in for him. It's personal, you know? He inflicted too much damage on that kid. There was a big reason why he did. And I, I just don't know what it was. And there's something else that doesn't make sense. A search of the area reveals the rest of Vernie's clothes are nowhere to be found. So was he abducted somewhere else and moved here for the kill? Or was he killed elsewhere and dumped here? When detectives fan out just a block and a half from the body, they find the answer. They would find some clothing that they thought possibly belonged to Vernie Mitchell. That would be a jacket, one glove, and they also found a brown paper bag. The bag is from the bread Vernie bought, and the clothes show no signs of blood. So from those items, police read the story of Vernie's last hour and find a telling clue. Somebody kidnapped him on his way home and knew the area because they slipped through houses that were occupied to get a block away and then to get into that alleyway. So it had to be somebody from that area. Desperate for help, police stop at the Mitchells. They quickly rule out each family member as a suspect. All have solid alibis and all are inconsolable. It took a toll on the whole family. I felt like he killed not only Bernie, he killed a part of me, he killed a part of everybody. But just as detectives start wondering where to turn next, they get a call. Seems a woman who lives just a block away from Bernie has quite a tale to tell. One parent would come forward with who alleged a sexual assault against her own child. She says his name is Tyrone Haddon. And the woman caller claims 18-year-old Tyrone lives very close to where Vernie was killed. Could Vernie also have fallen prey to Tyrone's twisted fantasies? 
or did Tyrone have a grudge against him? Police are about to find a whole string of scary suspects in a neighborhood full of dark secrets. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just days after 10-year-old Bernie Mitchell meets a terrible end, Trenton locals shiver from an ill wind that makes a Jersey January feel even colder. Bernie's sister, Michelle, recalls that neighbors were very nervous. It was a, a lot of fear. You knew there was a sick person who came in and did something very awful, but you didn't know who it was. But just a day after Vernie's murder, Trenton police could be hot on the trail of this mysterious monster. Seems the crime sparked one of Vernie's little buddies to reveal a couple of terrible memories. Seven-year-old son, Troy Riggs, recently told his mom he was sexually assaulted not once, but twice last year, by a neighborhood teen named Tyrone Haddon. Detectives would talk to that very young boy and the mother. They would secure a statement. I'm sure they were scared to death that another kid was going to get killed. And since detectives believe Vernie was also molested, was he another of the terrible teen's victims? He was the number one person of interest. He became a potential suspect in the murder of Vernie Mitchell. But police have their work cut out for them. While Troy insists Tyrone attacked him, he doesn't remember much because of the trauma. So detectives race to their records to find out more about Tyrone. 
and what they learn is very interesting indeed. Tyrone lives in the same neighborhood as Bernie, and there's more. Uh, he was a known user of uh, at least marijuana that, that I know of, and probably did not have a job at that point in time. Tyrone also has a rep on the street for being a bit unstable mentally. But did this troubled teen graduate from rape to murder? And if he did, can detectives tie him to Vernie's killing? Tracking down Tyrone turns out to be harder than they thought. One couple of detectives went out to his last known address to find him. They were told he didn't live there anymore. A neighbor says Tyrone flew the coop just this morning, the day after Vernie's death. Did Tyrone have reason to make himself scarce? But as police check to see if any other residents have seen hide or hair of Tyrone, they come upon a lucky surprise just a block away. Some patrol officers found him on the street. At that point, everybody in the police department knew he was a potential suspect, one in the Vernie Mitchell's murder. So patrol cops brought him into the police department, and then he was interviewed. Tyrone is quiet, cooperative, and more than a little crazy. Among other things, he's talking to himself. So police take Tyrone to the state mental hospital for observation. And when he's safely settled into the cuckoo's nest, detectives fly by for a chat. This nutty neighbor of Vernie's never confesses to the assaults on Troy. But they ask him about Vernie, too. He admitted that he knew of Vernie, but he denied being involved in the murder. Then, when detectives ask Tyrone where he was the evening Vernie was killed, his answer is a shocker. Just so happens he was in the roly-poly when Vernie came there um, to buy that loaf of bread. That set off some alarm bells in the detectives' minds. Tyrone seems to have no problem admitting he was in the store. And why? He said, yeah, I was in a roly-poly, and I would go in it all the time to wait for my contact to buy drugs. And that added to that suspicion. In fact, when police get the skinny from two roly-poly clerks, they confirm that Tyrone was shopping there when Vernie came in to buy bread. But when they tell what happened next, the story gets stranger still. According to those two employees, when Vernie left the store, he was followed out by him. Any detective would think that he may be the suspect in the case. Tyrone says he doesn't recall seeing Vernie there that night or following him out. He claims that even if he did leave the roly-poly right after Vernie, he went straight home to rest up for a night of partying. He says he went to sleep for a while and then he got together with some friends and they gambled and I think he drank some more. So by the time Vernie breathed his last, Tyrone claims he was already hanging with his friends, right on the same Laurel Avenue block where Vernie died. Police follow up faster than a summer hookup in Jersey Seaside Heights. He provided an extensive alibi about where he was, named everybody he was with. Detectives with that information went to all of those witnesses on his behalf, and basically they all backed him up, said he, no, he didn't do it, he was here. But the only adult on hand isn't sure that's true. The mother of one of the boys recalls a lot of people coming and going that night, and maybe one of them was Tyrone. 
seems the evidence against him sure is stacking up. I'm sure those detectives were elated because they thought, gee, this could be it. This could be the guy who did it. Everything will be solved. I'm sure they were excited as hell. But for now, detectives just don't have the goods to tie Tyrone to the murder. So they leave him in the mental hospital to cool his heels for a while. And in the meantime, the autopsy report comes in. Will it give them the ammunition to put Tyrone away for good? It starts by confirming what police observed at the crime scene. Cause of death was uh, blood trauma to the, uh, to the head. Pretty big wound there. The M.E. also believes the boy was sexually assaulted, which could point to Tyrone, given the other child's claims that Tyrone attacked him. But the best clue is the horrible number of superficial stab wounds on the small body. I believe it was 47 individual wounds on that young boy. Somebody was definitely in a rage to do what they did. Police believe it's more evidence that Vernie's killer knew him and wanted him good and dead. But the wounds themselves are even more telling. The majority of the wounds were inflicted upon that young boy uh, prior to his death, so in fact he was, in my opinion, tortured before he was killed. Could Tyrone Hatton have been so cold-hearted and cruel? When detectives check back in with him, he continues to swear he's innocent. But police ask him to put his money where his mouth is. He was asked if he would take a polygraph examination about the murder of Vernie. He agreed. New Jersey State Police came uh, down, polygraphed him. To detectives' surprise, Tyrone passes the poly. So they put him on the back burner. Hoping to solve the case and calm the fears, police groups and local businesses put up reward money for information leading to an arrest. And within hours, it pays dividends. An anonymous caller dials into dispatch with quite a sob story. About a week into the investigation, detectives received a phone call from a man who was crying on the phone. And he would implicate a person by the name of Damon Barnes in the murder of uh, Vernie Mitchell. But while the man on the line readily names the guy he says killed Vernie, he won't give his own name or the reason he's so upset. So his story leaves detectives wondering if they can believe their own ears. Could be a legit call. Could be somebody uh, looking for revenge on somebody that had absolutely nothing to do with it. Is the crazy caller making the whole thing up just to claim the reward money? Or could the caller be the killer himself? Maybe this tantalizing twist will blow the case wide open. Soon after little Vernie Mitchell meets a tragic end, Trenton, New Jersey locals are mourning the sweet boy as they hold their own children close. It was a sense of fear, you know, that could happen now to my child because it happened to Vernie, but, but also it was a sense of, of anger that someone would do that. But just a week after Vernie's passing, Trenton police have gotten an earful from an intriguing informant. A crying man has called dispatch to say he knows who killed Vernie Mitchell, a local teen named Damon Barnes. Damon Barnes was a 16-year-old ninth grade student who did, in fact, live very close to the crime scene, maybe a block and a half, two blocks away. 
the hysterical caller sounds like a grown man, and he won't say how he knows Barnes. But he does say something that sparks detectives' interest. This anonymous caller told detectives Damon Barnes had bragged about dragging Vernie away that night and killing him. In fact, Damon Barnes sounds like such a promising catch that detectives may need a little help reeling him in. So they call on a little lady with a big reputation. Prosecutor Catherine Flicker. Flicker dives into the case with an attitude that matches her nickname, the shark. I think that I was a very effective cross-examiner. I drew blood. And once there was blood in the water, I went in for the kill. So I think that's why they called me the shark. And when Flicker gets wind of Vernie's heartbreaking case, catching his killer percolates to the top of her to-do list. My feeling was, I want to get this son of a bitch. That was my feeling. I will do whatever I have to do legally and appropriately to get the guy who did this to Vernie Mitchell. First on Flicker's agenda is to help police determine whether their latest caller is crying wolf or is the big bad wolf himself hiding in sheep's clothing. Why does the crying man call and try to implicate a kid in the murder? He's got some kind of beef with uh, Barnes. I really don't know. So police decide their best bet is to check on Damon Barnes's background. Damon had some type of juvenile record, uh, and I think he was fairly well known in the community as something of a bully, carried weapons, and so he became a person of interest to the police. Police are especially surprised by the unusual arsenal Damon is packing. Damon uh, Barnes carried a hatchet and a knife on his person since it was some type of cutting instrument that cut Vernie up. So, yeah, there you go. Axe, knife. Time to track down this young tough and see what he has to say for himself. It's easy enough for detectives to find Damon at school, just a couple of blocks from where Vernie lived. And Damon seems calm when detectives bring him into the station, but he can't recall where he was at the time Vernie was killed. He really did not have an alibi. Uh, he couldn't remember after school that day what he did going into Wednesday night. But detectives press Damon, and the events of that fateful night start coming back to him. While he says he didn't see Vernie that evening, he does admit to meeting up with Vernie's brother, and it sounds like things went badly. Uh, Barnes told the detectives he had a fight with Vernie's older brother, Chucky, so that raised a, a red flag in their minds that possibly he could have been involved in it. Damon denies that his fight with Vernie's bro was anything more than a spat, and he swears he didn't take revenge on Vernie. Chucky confirms Damon's story. Still, when Prosecutor Flicker starts to tally up the strikes against this neighborhood thug, he looks mighty suspicious. Damon lived in the area. He was known to carry weapons, and he was known to have had some kind of difficulty with Vernie's older brother. All of those are things that, when put together, would make him um, someone that the police would be interested in. But when police ask Damon to take a polygraph test, he passes with flying colors. So they put him on hold. Two weeks pass with no new leads. But just when police are feeling frustrated, out of the blue, in this usually quiet, close-knit neighborhood, 
one more strange new lead pops up. Amazingly, another mom, Clarissa Walters, calls the police station to report an attack on her son. And now this was the second young child to come forward after the uh, death of Vernie. And so there was a possibility they were all involved. When detectives stop by the Walters home, nine-year-old Deshaun tells them he was walking home from school when a man grabbed him off the street and tried to assault him. Strangely enough, it happened on the day of Vernie's funeral, just two days ago. And detectives can barely believe where. The place where this, this attack took place on that, on that child was in West Trenton, uh, the same area that Vernie lived. Uh, I guess about eight, maybe nine blocks away. But Deshaun managed to escape and raced home safe and sound. If he can ID the man who attacked him in broad daylight, maybe police will have their guy. But Deshaun says he was grabbed from behind and never saw his attacker's face. He never really got a good look at him, or he did. He's a child. In that scary situation, uh, it wouldn't surprise me that he wouldn't be able to identify anybody. Hoping the traumatized tot may have caught even a fleeting glance, detectives showed Deshaun photos of the most likely suspects. The detectives would show that young victim uh, photo lineups. The young child did not identify either one of those. But if neither alleged child molester Tyrone nor demonic Damon ring a bell, for investigators, there's another, even more alarming possibility. Do you have a serial predator out there attacking young kids? You've got three kids in the span of just a couple of weeks. So the possibility was there that they were all related somehow. It's enough to send chills down the spine of Vernie's sister and everyone else in the neighborhood. There were young kids that in the neighborhood and they were scared. It changed everybody because no one knew who it was. But detectives are more determined than ever to find out. So they keep knocking on neighbors' doors. It's a technique that's near and dear to Detective Cosmo's heart. In fact, you could say it's his motto. G-O-Y-A-K-O-D. It just meant get off your ass and knock on doors. That's the only way you're going to solve a crime. It was a sign that I kept taped above my desk. It was there to remind me to uh, do my job. Out there and find that one witness that solves the case. When detectives pound the pavement one more time, committed to finding the monster who killed Bernie Mitchell, their persistence pays off. A 17-year-old neighbor of Bernie's on Highland Avenue answers her door and tells police a curious tale. A young woman told them about a conversation she had with Anthony Lee Foskey. The day after the murder, Foskey came up on her porch and told her that he was involved in killing a young boy the night before. Foskey is a 17-year-old who lives across the street from Bernie. The young woman explains that she hasn't told anyone about this because she thought Foskey was just trying to come off as a tough guy. But looking back, she has a sinking feeling he was talking about Bernie Mitchell. Stranger still, she tells police that Foskey was a pallbearer at Bernie's funeral. Detectives had to look at Anthony Lee Foskey. They would bring him in to the detective bureau 
to speak with him. Is Foskey a family friend or a cruel-hearted child killer? Or maybe another twist yet to come will finally close the case. Trenton, New Jersey honors William Trent for having the vision to plan this town back in 1714. Two and a half centuries later, Reverend Wayne Griffith recalls how the folks in historic Trenton pulled together after Vernie Mitchell's tragic murder. Persons wrapped their arms around the Mitchell family and, you know, let them know that they had support. There was a, a working together of, of police and community. I believe everybody wanted to find out you know, what had happened. Luckily, investigators are all over a possible lead from a neighbor of Bernie's. Seems local teen, Anthony Lee Foskey, told her he killed a young boy. And he blurted out the bizarre confession the very night after Bernie was done in. She asked him, was it Bernie that she killed? And then he backed off. He said, no, no, it was, it was some kid. And he stabbed the boy and didn't really kill him. Sounds like Foskey was trying to cover his tracks. But when detectives dig into his past deeds, Foskey can't hide all the skeletons in his closet. Anthony had a criminal record as a juvenile. He had sexually assaulted two very young girls. So he had a past, at least with girls at that point. Maybe he decided to go after a boy this time. So detectives pay Foskey a visit at his family's home on Highland Avenue across the street from Vernie's. They invite him down to the detective's bureau to see what he might want to get off his chest. He comes willingly, but prosecutor Kathy Flicker recalls he brings a ton of toot along with him. He was arrogant, somewhat cocky, sure of himself, and always thought that he was brighter than everyone around him. But when police inform this big-headed brat that they know about his neighborly confession, he loses his cool. He got angry, violent. I think he threw himself on the floor. He jumped up. They thought he was going to jump out the window. But what Foskey does next is even more alarming. He did threaten if he found out who that person was that tried to implicate him in this murder, he would kill that person. Detectives press on and ask Foskey where he was the night Bernie was killed and whether he had anything to do with it. Of course, he denied any involvement in Vernie's murder. He gave an alibi. Foskey says he was home helping his sister Connie clean the house and then went to his girlfriend's around 8.30 and stayed there into the wee hours. But detectives have a hard time believing a 17-year-old boy was lending his sis a hand around the house. So they dust up some details of their own from Foskey's sister. She said, uh, well, that was a lie because he never cleaned the house. And why would he use me as an alibi witness? Connie claims she has no idea whether her bro was involved in the murder. And Foskey's girlfriend denies seeing him that night. Police aren't about to sweep his bad alibi under the rug. Bad guy's in trouble. Uh, or his own family does not back up his own alibi, including his family members that were allegedly a part of it. You can only think that, in fact, he is the guy who did it, but there was a lot more work to do. The fact is, as guilty as Foskey sounds, molesting teenage girls and lying about housework 
doesn't mean he pulled off Bernie's gruesome murder. And police have no hard evidence tying him to the crime scene. So detectives go for the next best thing. They ask Foskey to take a polygraph test. He took a polygraph examination and he passed the examination. It's a shock to police and it sends them back to square one once again. That homicide investigation was, I'm sure, frustrating as heck. You get the highs and the lows and the highs and the lows and it's, it's a difficult thing. Then, only a few weeks later, just when police think this case can't get any stranger, another call comes into the station that's even creepier than the crying callers. This scary speaker tells police that he snuffed out little Bernie's life, and that's not all. This was someone who sounded angry, and the uh, anonymous caller claimed that he wasn't just satisfied killing one kid, he was going to kill more. But the trash talker raises more questions for police than he answers. Is he playing a dangerous game of cat and mouse with Trenton's finest? Or is he behind Bernie's murder? And maybe some of the other assaults on the little boys in the neighborhood. Police have no luck finding out. And without any new leads, those questions remain unanswered. And the case comes to a dead end. But Vernie's family and friends can't bring themselves to set their grief aside, even when the case goes cold. So they continue to wait and hope. I was bitter because I didn't think it was happening fast enough. I knew justice would happen. But sometimes, you know, you want things before it's time. I was just waiting for an answer, and then it ran into weeks, months, years. Twelve long years pass, and in 1988, Detective Michael Cosmo can't wait any longer. He single-handedly decides to take one more look as the department begins a campaign to revive cold cases. Vernie's sister, Michelle, is the first to sit down with the detective. And as he starts asking questions, he stirs something deep in her memory. She recalls an encounter from all those years ago that she's never shared with anyone, not even her own family. Seems a neighborhood bully had been practically stalking her. He would come up to, tra to Trenton High to follow me around when I'm on a bus stop, and he would call, ask, you know, wanting to talk to me. Then, just hours before Vernie vanished, the tenacious teen saw her near her house. He said, come here. And I cursed at him, you know, and laughed at him. And he said, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And I ran up on the porch and went inside the door. When Michelle mentions the name of the boy, investigators can't believe what they're hearing. But is it terrible teen Tyrone Haddon, family friend, or maybe foe Anthony Foskey, weapons warrior Damon Barnes, or someone even darker who no one yet suspects? Once in a while, when an officer gets information that sounds right, you think this may be the break, this may be what's going to solve this case. And like any human being, you get excited at that prospect. I'm gonna get you. 
After 12 years, Detective Michael Cosmo could be close to solving the toughest case of his career, the brutal murder of Vernie Mitchell. When he sits down for a chat with Vernie's sister, Michelle, she shares a memory she's almost forgotten after all these years. Just before Vernie went missing, local loser Anthony Foskey had followed her home. And I said, that fool's out there. We laughed. He said, I'm going to get you. Foskey not only threatened Michelle that night, but also her family. At the time, she thought it was just angry words from a scorned suitor. People don't always believe when somebody says, well, I'm going to get you or your family. You tend to disregard it. Only talking to the detective now does Michelle put two and two together. And then it hit me. I said, wow, he was there that night. And I'm saying, was he waiting for me? And then he saw Bernie. Looking back, she and detectives wonder, was Foskey so furious at Michelle's rejection that he really did take out his revenge on her brother, Bernie? Could a broken heart be the key to cracking this case? Police decide to get the answers straight from the horse's mouth. Anthony Foskey. Anthony uh, Lee Foskey was incarcerated at Trenton State Prison for sexual assaults. He was doing 15 years. It was another red flag that prompted us to interview him. And this time, Foskey's in the slammer for sexually assaulting two young boys. He agrees to a jailhouse interview where he again denies killing Vernie. This cocky character also sticks to the story that his sister and girlfriend both denied. Between Foskey's record, Michelle's statement, and the bad alibi, police are encouraged, but they need more. I, I think we're going to solve this case, but we still need a confession from the suspect. But despite detectives' best efforts, they can't get the jailbird to sing. And then Foskey flies out the cage door. His prison term is up, and he's a free man. It's not until six years later that they finally get their hands on him again. Unexpectedly, Detective Cosmo gets a call from none other than Anthony's own brother, Ronald, who's had something weighing on his mind. His brother would tell us that Anthony admitted killing Vernie Mitchell, uh, and Ronald uh, was willing to basically testify against his brother. So at that point, I and my bosses felt we could uh, put this case together. So Cosmo tracks down Foskey, who's in jail again, this time for a parole violation, and brings him to the Trenton Police Department for a taped interview. The calm criminal sticks to his story. But suddenly, it seems Foskey changes his mind. There came a point in time, very strangely, Anthony sitting in a chair just like this, and I'm sitting over there, and they just looked up at the ceiling and just stared. How long, I don't know, it seemed like forever. And then he brought his eyes down and he confessed. 19 years after the crime, Anthony Foskey is charged with the sexual assault and murder of Vernie Mitchell. On April 16th, 1999, 40-year-old Foskey is sentenced to life in prison. I'm thankful that he's incarcerated and he can't hurt anyone else. I mean, there are other bad people in the world, but that one cannot hurt anyone else. 
Based on Anthony Foskey's confession, this is what happened on that terrible night. Foskey was hanging out on Highland Avenue, the street where he and Vernie both lived, when he saw Vernie coming toward him carrying a bag of bread. He said hello to Vernie. Vernie crossed the street because Vernie knew who Foskey was, and then uh, Anthony grabbed him. Vernie manages to break away and runs up the steps of a house crying for help. But like a cat toying with a mouse, Foskey drags him off the porch and puts his hand over Vernie's mouth to mute his screams. He then claimed that he picked Vernie up and actually walked down to the vacant lot where Vernie's body was found and that he dumped him in the vacant lot. There, Foskey brutally assaults and kills the boy. And then, with no feelings of remorse, Anthony Foskey goes on with his evening, as if it were just another January day. He said he went to a liquor store and got something to drink, went home, went to sleep, just like it was nothing, just like Vernie Mitchell was a piece of garbage. He is evil personified based on what he did back then. And no one is more thankful to the Law & Order team that put this heinous criminal behind bars than Bernie Mitchell's dad, Charles. I talked to Cosmo, and I told him, well, I appreciate what he's done. And I know that my wife was still living. She would feel the same way. Detective Cosmo finally begins his well-earned retirement on May 1st, 1995. But he'll never forget Bernie Mitchell, nor will the townsfolk of Trenton. For them, the happy little boy's legacy is a cautionary tale that keeps other children a bit safer. The, the case of Bernie Mitchell was a wake-up call to the community as related to we have to be more protective of our children. <laughs>